Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the show, Sandhya Sashadri. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I've heard so much about you and it's an honor to be here finally. Well, Sandhya, great to have you here. Now, you and I share something in common. We've both been in, we both come from the world of chip design. Not too many people in real estate come from that world. And definitely want to hear about what you're doing in the world of real estate investing. But maybe why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? So like a lot of Asian geeks, my strength was in math. So I had an engineering career. I have a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering. And I started my career at Texas Instruments in Dallas. And I just enjoyed the technical aspects of the job, but eventually I realized that it's all the business people in the room who are making a lot of the decisions, and some of them did not even have engineering degrees. So that kind of propelled me to working on an MBA part-time. So I also understood how they do their financial analysis, market analysis, et cetera, while they choose the projects we work on as engineers. So I got to learn from a very technical role where I started out doing failure analysis of semiconductors. I went on to quality and uh, product and test engineering and finally into marketing and then program management because of my MBA knowledge. So then I started running projects, large scale wireless kinds of projects to the tune of, you know, $80 million with global teams all over from, you know, India, Israel, of course, our assembly and things were in Taiwan and customers were everywhere. So when I worked on automotive projects, it was Germany and, you know, a lot of, of course, business in San Jose and Japan for a lot of the um, USB types of, uh, you know, interface products and display products, et cetera. But all of that basically is transferable because when you have strong math skills and strong project management skills, you can easily apply that in real estate. So the way I made my way to real estate is I went into the stock market full time for quite some time because I wanted a flexible schedule. And now that I had my MBA and all this you know, investor club kind of knowledge, it made sense to go into the stock market. But I wanted something to save me on taxes and I wanted to find a way that I also took advantage of the real estate appreciation that was happening. And, you know, they say 90% of millionaires do so through real estate. So I wanted to have a piece of it. But I didn't grow up with a handy person kind of background to go and fix toilets and leaks and things like that. And I certainly didn't want to get calls on Christmas Day saying, hey, my, uh, you know, I have a big leak here. You need to come and fix it kind of work. So when I heard about multifamily, which is large scale multifamily, over 100 doors, it made sense to go into it because you employ a property management company and, and you know, you employ a property manager on site, you have leasing staff, you have maintenance staff who will take care of all of that for you. And you're more of an asset manager, which directly translates to the kind of program management I was doing for GI. So that was just a perfect match. And as soon as I attended a weekend seminar that talked about it, I was sold and I was like, this is the way to go. So here I am. I love it. Well, there's no one pathway to get into the world of investing and development. Now, I believe most of the projects you're working on are more of a value add type of project. Is that right? Correct. I always look for a value add component in addition to some level of yield play because I want to be able to force appreciate the value of the project by, you know, adding to the income, 
adding revenue streams, multiple revenue streams from other income sources, as well as the fundamental thing, which is rent in ways that residents want to pay for. You know, you don't want to make a palace out of a C-class property, but in an add amenities that make sense for that property, that demographic, and decrease your expenses. You know, basically question why you need to do something like an upgrade before you do it so that you only spend enough money to get the rent bump that you need. And for that, the local knowledge really helps. You work with your property management and figure out, okay, I need to spend only $3,000 to upgrade this unit to get my $150 rent bump. I don't need to spend $10,000. So those are the kind of value add examples that we do to force appreciate the value of the property. Because as you know, in real estate, the value of a property is based on its net operating income. So by appreciating the NOI, we're, we're doing that. You're creating value that way. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the transition from the world of engineering to the to the world of real estate investing. What was that transition like? What What did you experience? What skills did you find were completely portable? What did you have to relearn? What did you simply say, well, that's not me, I got to hire someone? So the easiest ones were math and underwriting. So being able to use spreadsheets, you know, it's fairly straightforward to underwrite a deal. The question is what assumptions you make on those numbers that go into every uh, cell of that analyzer spreadsheet. And that's where the local knowledge comes into play. And so luckily I was located and I'm located in Dallas for the last 31 years. And that's a great market for multifamily. So I already had that knowledge base of the local market. And then the math skills, underwriting, and project management skills were especially handy in the asset management side. Now, the part, the skill that I wasn't quite so proficient at is really the construction management side to really know the nitty gritties of how much would a project like this cost me so that I'm not taken for a ride by any contractor. And to do that, I joined a mentoring program. I have a huge network of operators with whom I can ask these questions. So we have a list of preferred vendors. And so we always get three bids. And then, you know, as I kept doing this more and more over the last three and a half years, it really helped kind of figure out, okay, like I said, in my previous example, this is what an upgrade should cost me. This is what a repair of this kind should cost me. So having a network to cover the things that you don't have the knowledge of, and I always partner also with one or two other sponsors in my deals. And they usually cover that in terms of having a background to be able to size up a project. One of the things that I learned in the tech industry, we often got involved in mergers and acquisitions, acquiring companies, for the simple reason that when you make an acquisition, it's a balance sheet transaction. Whereas if you were to spend that money on R&D, it's now an expense, which is reducing your profit. So we found that, and you see this often in the stock market where acquisitions happen, it doesn't affect the operating income in the same way that uh, spending that same amount of development over years and years. So if you translate that now into the world of real estate investing, let's talk about deferred maintenance. You take over a project, you say, well, I have these, I don't know, 30 air conditioners. They're, They're not all dead yet, but if I replace them now as part of a capital project, then that appears on the balance sheet. Whereas if I have to replace them one by one as they fail, that's going to come out of my operating expense and is going to hurt the value of the property, even though replacing that air conditioner is going to cost, say, $3,500 a piece, irrespective of when you do it. Have you taken that approach into the way you plan your projects? Yes, we uh, plan our CapEx projects by doing a due diligence, a very thorough physical due diligence up front, 
before we even close the deal. And we actually use a third-party company who does that for us. And they come in, we have access to the property for three or four days. And they come in with uh, something like 40, 50 people sometimes, depending on uh, what systems we need some information on. And so we have a huge matrix of what's wrong with something, what is an immediate repair you have no choice but to do, and then what's something you can defer for later, what makes sense to classify as a CapEx project, which is a capital expense. And along the same lines, even your lender is going to have a list they want you to do. Your insurance company might also have a list they want you to do. So once you put all that together, that's where you come up with a capital expense budget. And in terms of specifically air conditioners that you mentioned, we especially love to replace them because right now with the Biden administration in progress, there's a lot of um, energy contracts and rebates going on. So we always want to take advantage of that. We want to work with vendors who can get us the maximum encore, for example, at a rebate. And so in one of our properties um, that we acquired last year, we replaced every air conditioner on the property for about 20% of the cost that it would normally cost me to replace them. So it just made sense to be able to do that because when you speak with brokers and you think about the future, your exit strategy, they'll always tell you if every air conditioner has been replaced on a property, that's a huge selling point. So anything that's replaced, that's been part of the CapEx you spent is a very good selling point. So again, we listen to the broker as well as, you know, our lender and our due diligence guys to kind of finalize that list of um, CapEx projects, because those are what we call below the line expenses. So they don't hit your NOI, as you just mentioned. And so, you know, increasing the NOI without impacting it with all these repairs is uh, definitely one of the big ways that we force appreciate the values of these properties. I love it. Over the last couple of years in particular, there's been a massive amount of cap rate compression. Arguably, C-class properties are overpriced relative to their A-class counterparts. How have you made your investment decisions over the last couple of years? Where have you positioned the business to extract the most value? One of the ways we underwrite our deals is do not assume a lot of large rent bumps in the first couple of years. And we plan for like an economic vacancy of like 20%, for example, in year one. And we also underwrite it for an exit cap, which is when I'm going to sell it in three to five years, I underwrite it for an exit cap that's at least 100 basis points above my entry cap. So if I'm buying something today at a four and a half cap, I'm going to sell it for a five and a half or a six cap is my assumption. So I already have a lot of, uh, shall we say, padding in there in the numbers to um, plan for worse economic times. Through COVID, when we underwrote our deals, we underwrote it for zero rent bump year one, and then a very minimal rent bump in year two. And what happened was actually the opposite. We're getting organic 10% plus rent bumps easily across the properties. But one of the most important thing to keep in mind in C-class properties is um, because they tend to have you know, folks with lower income brackets than an A-class property, you really want to refine on the location of the property. You want to make sure you have diversity of jobs there and low crime. Those are two very important things that we can't change in a matter of two to three years. So I try to pick excellent suburbs that I'm very familiar with because of living in the Dallas area. For example, we got one in Carrollton. We got something in Hearst. So we got something in Irving and Garland. So really popular big suburbs of Dallas where you can find those pockets of lower crime, higher median household income, very family friendly, surrounded by, you know, single family homes that are priced at, you know, 200K and up at least. And then you may want to make sure that whatever rent you charge per month, like let's say the average rent is about thousand a month, 
that times 12, 12,000. You want to make sure that your tenant base can support that with at least a three to four X that in their annual income. So if I'm charging only 12,000 a year, I still like to look for a tenant base that's going to have a median household income of 50K and up rather than 30K and up, because then I'm going to plan for delinquency. And then a plan to address delinquencies is huge, especially when we went through COVID. Absolutely. Well, Sandia, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? My website is the best way to find me. It's multifamilyforyou.com, where it's multifamily4you.com. And they can put their name and email address, send me a message. They can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Fabulous. Well, Sandia, love watching your journey and uh, love the perspective. We'll definitely connect next time I'm in Dallas, which will be in the not too distant future. In the meantime, for the folks at home, definitely connect with Sandia at multifamily for you. That's the number four you.com. The link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.